The goal of this podcast is to offer a platform for people to tell their personal stories about how the recent U.S. political climate has directly affected them and how past experiences have shaped their current views. There may be times when you find yourself disagreeing with the opinions or experiences described on this podcast. We're not here to judge or take sides, so please listen with an open mind and heart. Welcome to Community Voices. We're listening. Welcome to the 10th episode of Community Voices We're Listening. This episode is a bit different than previous episodes in that it was recorded live by Dan Matthews and the Arlington Young Democrats for an event called Immigrant Voices, which took place on Sunday, July 22, 2018 at the Central Library in Arlington, Virginia. The purpose of the event was to listen to personal stories directly from immigrants and help spread understanding, awareness, and empathy. The event began with four speakers sharing their immigration stories, and then there was an audience Q&A session. A lawyer specializing in immigration law joined the panel of speakers during the Q&A session to help field audience questions. For information about this event and the Arlington Young Democrats, visit arlingtonyoungdems.org and danielmatthews.org, and both of those websites will also be in the show notes for this episode. Thank you guys for tuning in, and please enjoy the following live recording of Immigrant Voices. All right, so welcome to Immigrant Voices. Um, I am the Immigration and Law Caucus Chair for Arlington Young Democrats. Um, I'm so excited that you guys are here. Thank you so much. Um, So the purpose of tonight's event is really to spread empathy, awareness, and um, and kind of knowledge of immigrant stories um, across how you know to as many people as we can and we have four speakers tonight behind me um, each one has agreed to tell their story tonight and um, they're amazing they they do a lot of really really cool work as you guys will hear so I'm very excited that they were able to make it um, and also we're gonna start out by hearing from each speaker I'm gonna do a little intro for each person and then we're gonna have a Q&A session so you guys will have a chance to ask any questions you have um, also you'll see there's a fifth chair up here Um, We have Alfredo Torres is coming. Um, He is an immigration lawyer, and he's going to be able to answer if you guys have any super specific uh, law questions or something. He's going to be here to to help field some of those questions as well. So um, if we don't have any questions, then we can go ahead and get started. Good? Thumbs up. Cool. All right. So our first speaker tonight is going to be Nawaf Haskan. So Nawaf is a Yazidi journalist from Iraq, currently based in the D.C. area. He's a research fellow with a Reagan Fassel Fellowship at the International Forum for Democratic Studies. He's engaged in research assessing the strengths and weaknesses of civil society in Iraqi Kurdistan. So I'm going to go ahead and let Nawaf speak. Hello, everyone. Uh, first, thank you so much, Kayla, and for the invitation. Uh, as she said, my name is Nawaf Haskan. I'm originally from Iraq. I'm uh, from a minority, I'm a religious minority it's called Yazidi. Uh, I, so I will go back to where I came from, and then I will just walk you through my story being here. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Sinjar. It's a as I said, it's a, a religious minority where Yazidi specifically live. Uh, that area, or the name of the Yazidi, were brought to attention of the media and you know international community after the, uh, the, the terrified attacks of ISIS on the on the you know 
on Mosul, Nineveh, and then specifically the, the Christians and Yazidi of uh, Nineveh plain. Uh, so that's where, you know, Yazidi were actually brought to, to the international, you know, headlines, news. I came from that, I came directly from that area. So I, I came here on a special immigrant visa due to my work as an interpreter for U.S. group for three years. So I remember in 2003, I was almost 16 year old when the U.S. troop came to Iraq. And I remember that, you know, the first, like, air, you know, the helicopter landed over on my village and we all, like, ran to it and what's this? And then we brought the commander with the army to the sheikh of the village, to the sheikh of the village. And that's, you know, my first experience with, the, you know, encountering any American in my life. Uh, two years later, in 2005, I, you know, I, between the two years, I had enough voca English vocabularies, and I joined the army as an interpreter for for the army in 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 Nineveh Plain, you know, Mosul area. I don't know how many of you are fam familiar with the, you know, with the map of Iraq, or I mean, know that much about about Iraq. So my where I grew up, it's basically you know, located on Syrian border. I could walk 30 minutes, I will be in Syria. So, and that's been the focus of all the conflicts and attention for the last, I think, almost four years. So in, after I was, uh, I was at high school when I was, I became interpreter. Then later on in 2008, I came back to finish my high school. I went to American University in Suleimania. In 2010, I, you know, I was awarded a, a scholarship at the American University. I graduated, uh, I majored in business, I minored in journalism, and I graduated in 2015 as a valedictorian of my class. And then when, later on, I worked with a, a organizations called International uh, organization for migration. Some of you might heard of them. They are basically involved in, you know, involved in like booking flights on tickets for the uh, different immigrants who get, who are already permitted the visa to travel out of their country. Also, when there is a wave of immigrants to the new country, they were, they are the one who like kind of provide them with transportation within that country to move them. So actually when I came here in two, two years ago, in 2016, I came here, I came through their program. So I was uh, awarded a special immigrant visa because of my service with the military, but then I had another step where you, uh, you know, you get a loan from them, you know, IOM from International Organization for Migration, and then you pay them. I'm still paying them, but it was very helpful. So I came here in 2016, but it, it was not my, I mean, it was not my first encounter, you know, counter with, encounter with you, any, you know, American, because I worked with the military, and actually in 2012, I was a part of a Shakespearean group where we came to uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I went to Ashland and San Francisco. And that's what my first time being, you know, with like somebody who's not in the military line with like ordinary people and being in the stage and all these fun things. So, uh, 
since 2016, my experience. The first time I remember I came and a family, <clears throat> so I came to DC, I will, yeah, I came to DC through some connection. One of my professor at the university, American University, she, she lives in, on Capitol Hill and with her mom. And when I told her I'm coming, we, we kind of became a friend. She was my teacher. Then we did some, I, I did some inter translation of some of her projects. She was working with the, some companies beside their work as a, with the, with the university. And we became, she became a family friend. And then when I told her I'm coming to America, uh, she said, okay, you must go to come to DC. And then I thought, you know, crazy rent a lot of you know it's very expensive life in dc it's not easy i told her okay i if you're not going to help me i would wouldn't be able to manage to live in dc with it so the biggest yazidi community uh is in lincoln nebraska for some reason <laughs> <laughs> i don't know why but somebody got there and they pulled out you know it's like the biggest somalian communities in minnesota which is crazy yeah, so, but, uh, so I, my idea was to, my one, I have a brother live, lives there with his wife and a lot of friends and relatives. I said, okay, I will join them. And then she said, okay, you must go to come to DC because it's good for us. Uh, Yazidi, they need a voice in DC and they have all these meetings and things and a lot of regulation. And I said, okay, I will come. But I said, okay, you need to provide me with accommodation. So she used to have, uh, when you know of her students, former student, or somebody already at her mother's basement. So one of my friends was already living there. So she looking around among her friends to find somebody so I could live with them. So I was I was hosted by this a very wonderful family of uh, you know parents and their son. Their son is not living with them, but the uh, the family hosted me for like nine months. And I, I remember the first morning I wake up, it was during, you know, the elections and a lot of talks going on and, and they had a radio on. I said, and they, I was like listening to the radio, a lot of stuff going on. And they said, what do you think? I said, oh, it sounds like Iraq. <laughs> like, <laughs> so <laughs> to me, you know, I thought, you know, there is not too much craziness on politics about, but uh, specifically in DC, I found it, it's overwhelming sometimes, yeah, for, you know, specifically for me. So uh, after spending nine months with them and become, now I regard them as a family, and Leila, my wife, she's here. <laughs> so she was not, uh, she didn't get the visa at the same time I got my visa, so I was, uh, sh later on she joined me. But I mean, her coming to, to here was much difficult. So I applied for the visa for two, two years, from 2014 to 2015. I was in the process of getting the visa. Leila got in 2017. And the day she got on the airplane, you know, she got their ticket and she got in the plane, the executive order, you know, was signed. So she was taken off the plane, sent it back home. And then we had a lot of, you know, advocacy and lobbying and trying to get her back and some many other people with her. Actually, there is a New Yorker tell, uh, article about her, you know, being taken off the plane. But as my experience with people, how many more minutes I have, sorry? 
Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't want to take any, but yeah. So my experience with DC and with the people, it's, I couldn't find, you know, more wonderful people that I've met during my, you know, my live, my, my being in DC. I, I, you know, great. I mean, just great people. I've met amazing people. I, I don't know, maybe I was so lucky or maybe I just, that's the, the way it is. So this family hosted me. Now I have like a huge network and uh, a group of friends. I mean, I right now I just came back helping. I was telling Kayla, sorry, I didn't get a suit or something very professional or formal because I was just helping some uh, some friends and I found out, okay, I will be late for the event. So that's like my daily life with, you know, in DC. I, after Layla, came I was awarded this fellowship but now it's done so it could be was so, uh, a fellowship with National Endowment for Democracy uh, seven months and then we moved to the northwest from the Capitol Hill to the northwest of DC now we live in the northwest DC and it's a wonderful neighborhood and now I share you know gardening with neighbors and do things so imagine now I actually do the garden of somebody who was a CIA liaison in Iraq in 2015, in, in 1960. So it's like, it was crazy. I tell somebody, how that happened? But you know, this communication and I mean, my experience with the people, it's wonderful. They are very respectful, very grateful, and they helped us a lot. And we, we feel that we are among our community. Uh, in terms of, that's in terms of people, in terms of like politics and, you know, uh, the whole policy toward immigration, it's been very tough. I have a lot of friends, including members of my family who are waiting for their visa since 2011. So it's, it hasn't been. So for the Yazidi community, most of the Yazidi who got here, they were on, they were interpreters, were US troops, they, somebody came like me, I came, then I will bring my family. That's what they, they did most of the SED got here. But I still have like hundreds of friends who are waiting for that process. It's become very difficult to get after the, you know, the new administration. For some reason, I think since 2017, for the last two years, I think, there were three Yazidi got into U.S. on this visa, and one of them was Layla. So, like, Layla and two other people. I think the, this statistic, I mean, the number of, you know, immigrants who would come to U.S., supposed to come to U.S., was 150,000. Now it's dropped to 245,000. I mean, there's a lot of regulation. Myself, I went through two years of vetting to get to here. So that's what kind of my experience with the whole process. Um, I was not sure what would get it, but I was one of the luckiest one, one of the luckiest. Uh, my, my impression in, with the US, I've been in most of the area, like New York, LA, uh, San Francisco, uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and where else, Santa Fe. I mean, all these different areas, Maryland and Virginia. Uh, for me, it's more, you know, I, f I feel safer traveling. It's not like I've been in Iraq. 
I wouldn't travel because for two reasons, being from a minority and second, being a former interpreter for U.S. troops, it was very risky for me to travel among the city. So for me, it's very easy right now. That's, uh, in terms of jobs, I, you know, I think for everybody now, it's kind of difficult period of, especially for me. I was, you know, valedictorian of my class, coming from business and speaking three languages and for me in Iraq, I was like making at least $3,000 a month, which is in Iraq, no taxes. You know, you don't pay any taxes, which is a lot. It's like, you know, one of member of the parliament it makes that money because of my experience and work and this thing. But when I came here, I would work for the same amount of money and maybe I would pay half of it for the taxes. But for me, I think, so my qualifications there was very high here I came it's barely made the entry level which is a process for me I have to adjust into that system and everybody I talked to who were, were immigrants here before I just was talking to somebody and said oh it's a process you have to be patient here you have to get to that system and it's a way of you know you have to push push to it I am I'm kind of like a shy so I back up they said no 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 you don't have to buy it. you send your CV if they didn't you email them if they didn't uh, reply you call them if they didn't reply you go there so <laughs> just like that I said okay that's um, I'm learning the process uh, being away sometime I feel homesick you know I like but even I, when I think about it it's uh, the first six months I was like, comparing things you know my life there my life here but now I gave up comparing because that's very annoying you know you can you you cannot stabilize your situation if you start you keep thinking about there and you keep comparing your life here to what you had there because I know if I go back I wouldn't have everything that I had before for example ISIS attacked my hometown and destroyed you know one of the things that ISIS did they had a list of the name of interpreters and they would go you know see that put a mark on the on the house and then next day they exploded. So I know yeah, that's everything gone. So, uh, I mean, that's everything I have. So in the future, I'm looking forward to do my MBA in one of these universities and I'm looking forward to get a better job. And Leila and I were just adjusting. Leila just started her sewing business and we, I mean, we are trying to do something. I mean, to at least do something for the people who have helped us for a long way to come here. And thank you so much. Awesome, thank you so much, Nawaf. So our next speaker is Yasmin Taeb. So Yasmin is a senior policy counsel at the Center for Victims of Torture, where she works on national security and refugee policy. Formerly a refugee from Iran, Yasmin is a naturalized US citizen. Her writings and commentaries have appeared in The Hill, Newsweek, Washington Post, New York Times, Miami Herald, Huffington Post, and Think Progress. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for organizing this event, to Arlington Young Dems. Thank you to all of you for being here. I'm uh, Yasmin Taib. Um, as was mentioned, I 
Uh, currently work at the Center for Victims of Torture as a senior policy counsel, um, leading the organization's advocacy and research on refugees and asylum seekers. So um, when my friend Bill asked me if I was interested in, in speaking at this event, this was really during the height of the family separation um, you know, crisis, a crisis of, of moral and it's a moral and humanitarian crisis that's still ongoing. I mean, we're, we're talking about still thousands of kids being in cages, right? So, and the reason why he re reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in speaking at the event was because, you know, my personal experience and the way that my family um, came to the U.S. was very similar to how we're seeing these families at the border being treated right now. So, just to give you kind of a little background about uh, myself and, and, and I guess my family's immigrant experience. So, um, so I was born in Iran and it was during the height of the Iran-Iraq war where you know, my family was trying to grapple with you know, trying to you know, preserve what we had, but also my mom knew that we, we needed to leave the country immediately since my brother was about to get drafted. So he was um, about 14 years of age. And during that war, this was about an eight year, really brutal war that left, um, you know, over a million dead and millions of refugees. Um, so there were, you know, like there was tons of also child soldiers that were being recruited um, to fight in the war, and that was a real concern and and a real kind of threat that my mom felt was going to be um, you know put upon our family and my brother. So she did what millions of other Iranian families did, right? So she literally, I and this was. I mean, over 25 years ago, and I, 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 I still have kind of vivid memories of that night when um, we were kind of packing up our bags and, and our suitcases. Um, there, there's four kids, uh, so myself and three siblings, and it was just my mom and us, and my father at the time was already in the U.S., so he, um, he had gotten a visa, so he was in the U.S., he was trying to see if there's a way we could join him. Um, we unfortunately weren't able to get a visa to the US. So, um, so we left Iran and we went to Turkey. Um, so we left to Turkey, we left for Turkey. And in and, and Turkey, there's uh, at the time, and even till today, because of that war, there's a massive Iranian community there. Um, I mean, a lot of Iranians during the war fled to Turkey because um, it, it, because at that time, and I think even today, um, you, uh, Iranians don't need to apply for a visa ahead of time. You just kind of get the visa um, to Turkey in the, or in the airport when you arrive. So, um, but similar to a lot of other countries, uh, Turkey also has kind of a limit on how many months that visitors are able to stay. So while we were living in Turkey in a motel, and this is, um, you know, four kids um, all under you know, around the age of 14 and under. Um, at the time, I was six. Um, I had a sister um, who was eight, and then my um, younger brother was uh, five. So, I mean, just think about it. And, and, I, and I only mention all of this because, you know, thinking to the situation of the families that are, you know, fleeing 
um, the Northern Triangle. They're they're fleeing gang violence, poverty. Um, you know, we were lucky in that we had resources to be able to live in a motel room for about six months. Um, and then we left the country to go to Cyprus when our visa expired. Um, and then we came back to Turkey and lived there for about an, an additional three months. I mean, I mentioned all this. It was obviously incredibly difficult for our family. Um, and I can't imagine that the strain and stress that it put on my mom. But, but I think But in a lot of ways, I think even what my family went through was, you know, so much better than what so many other refugee and asylum seekers go through today. So, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, um, you know, so again, so when we came back from Cyprus, so throughout this entire like six to nine month period, we still weren't able to get a visa to the U.S. Um, so it was getting to a point where my mom felt as though she basically tried everything she possibly could, I exhausted every kind of legal avenue that was available to her. So, um, so she eventually hired a smuggler um, in Turkey um, that was going to help us uh, basically cross the border from Mexico into the US. Um, and again, I mentioned all of this because the, this is what families are, are, are doing today. Um, and these are really that these are really points and examples of, to me, f the fearlessness and, and really the strength of these parents to do everything they possibly can to get their children to safety, right? I mean, for my mom, and she, just like any other mom, she wanted to make sure that we were able to live in peace and security and be able to go to school and actually have a normal life. And to her, she just couldn't fathom us living in a motel room for, for what, years? Just so we can see if maybe one day we could get a visa. Um, so at that point, she hired a smuggler. Uh, the smuggler helped us get to Mexico. Um, and he helped us through the Tijuana border. Um, so Tijuana, for the ones of you that aren't familiar, so it's on the California side, so it's by San Diego. Um, and, you know, what I remember from that night, and it was, you know, a September night, uh, they generally, those that are helping these families cross the border, they tell you to wear dark clothing, they tell you, obviously, to only do this at night. Um, and and I, the only thing I... Like the other thing I can remember from that night was that we we were we kept being told that make sure you're you know if you're captured just make sure you're on the U.S. side and if you're captured just make sure you're you're captured by U.S. authorities and not by Mexican authorities because if you don't make it to U.S. grounds and if you're caught you're just going to be sent back to Iran. So um, thankfully for us, uh, we were apprehended by CBP, um, border authorities, um, you know, and similar to what, again, a lot of families are going through um, today, um, you know, when we were crossing, we had to separate. So I was with my mom and older brother and younger brother, and then the smuggler was running with my sister. Um, so at some point we, we all got separated. Um, I, my mom couldn't keep up cause she was sick. She had a thyroid disease. So 
so we lost my sister and this mother at some point. Um, and the only reason we even realized it was they ended up being caught by the authorities. Um, so the author- like, there was a chopper. The authorities essentially um, said something to the fact that we have your daughter. And I mean, none of us uh, spoke English except my mom. Um, so she was obviously telling us this afterwards. Um, and at that point, that's when we all basically came out of hiding. Um, thankfully, we were reunited. Um, and again, I say all this, thankfully, you know, we were put in a detention center, but we were only in a detention center and th- th- these are jails, legit jails. Um, but we were in a detention center for about two weeks. So, you know, anytime I, I, t- I talk about my story, I, you know, I, I think people, people don't realize that there are actually families like living in our communities that actually have gone through this. Um, and I think for me, I don't know. I, I, like, I didn't, I think even when I think about it, I don't think that there, there was anything extraordinary with what we, what we did or what we went through because I, I, I see it happening everywhere. I, I, I mean, our, our country is filled with immigrants and refugees. Literally, you know, to me as, as, as an advocate now who works on refugee issues, you know, the, the traditionally and, and historically our country has been that, right? Our, our country has been a home for those fleeing violence and persecution. So when I saw those images from, from, from weeks ago, all over the news, young children in, in cages and, and hearing the stories of, 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 of toddlers and babies and <laughs> just, just children being separated from, from, from their parents. It's, I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking for anybody, but it's, it, it, yeah, it, it just brings a level of just a personal connection to, to what these families are going through because, because even though I went through that, I, I can't even imagine, I can't even imagine if, if they took my sister or if they took me and, and they separated me from my parents. So, sorry, but I mean, this is why it's so important for us to share these stories because it's, it's unconscionable what's happening. And, and even though we're not seeing these pictures as much in the news, we are following these cases. There's over 3,000 children right now that are still separated from their parents, over 3,000 for months. I mean, I can't, I can't even imagine. And it's, it's not only heartless, it's, it's not who we are, it's, it's, it's illegal what, what this administration is doing. Um, but, you know, I think it's so important for us to talk about these stories because, you know, we, we need to make sure that people realize just, just the, 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 the inhumanity of this situation and for, for people to realize that, you know, there was a time when we would never even think about shutting anybody out at our borders. If, if, if they come to our borders, it doesn't matter if, if they, they, they've, they fled and they're coming without authorization. It's, 
it, it's a violation of U.S. laws. It's a violation of international laws for, for our country to turn away refugees, period, period. So I don't care what this administration says about a zero tolerance policy. Like that, that's, that's a violation of our, our own U.S. laws. Asylum seekers have absolutely every right to come to our country to seek refuge. And this is what we need to be saying every single day. And thankfully, you know, we live in a community like Arlington, which is beautiful and diverse and, and welcoming. Um, you know, there obviously other communities across the country may not be that way, but you know, I'm I'm so thankful that our community has has been so vocal in opposing this administration's unconscionable immigration refugee policies, and we need to continue to do that, right? So, I mean, I obviously work on these issues. I care passionately about these issues because it impacted my own life. If, if, you know, if I was born at a different time, if we came at a different time, then, you know, I may not be here today, right? And I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure that other families also are given a chance. So, and I think that, you know, the, the more that we, we continue to talk about these stories, the more we, you know, recognize that we need to stand up and defend and protect the rights of everybody in our communities, whether, you know, whether we're talking about immigrants or refugees, you know, whether we're talking about women or the LGBTQ community, any community, any time that is come under threat by this administration, we need to stand up and we need to speak out and we need to support them. So thank you so much for, for everything you're doing. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here. All right, thank you so much, Yasmin. Um, so our next speaker is Claudia Quinones. Claudia is currently a community organizer in the DMV area for United We Dream, which is the largest immigrant youth-led community in the country. She and her mother migrated from Bolivia to Maryland when she was 11 years old, and she is a DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood, Childhood Arrivals recipient. So hello everyone, uh, again my name is Claudia Quinones and I'm originally from Bolivia. Uh, I want to share with you uh, a little bit of uh, what was the process uh, of coming to the US. So uh, my parents separated when I was nine years old and my mother was a college professor. She uh, was teaching chemistry at the time and at that time we were alone in my country and we had a few family members who, uh, that lived here in, in the US and said, hey, uh, you should come to the US, we will help you, we will give you all, all our support and you'll be fine here. Uh, so my mother decided to apply for a tourist visa. And many of her friends will tell her, well, you know, it might be really hard for you to get a visa, especially if it's for you and your daughter. What are you going to do if only you get it and she doesn't get it? What are you going to do? And so I remember my mom telling her friends that she was coming to the U.S. only if uh, her and I were granted the visa. And so in order to get a visa, it's a very extensive process. You have to show that you have income and that you have no intentions of staying here in the U.S. So uh, finally, my mother and I were granted a visa and we came to the U.S. in 2006. 
Uh, we came to Maryland, and I remember uh, that we landed in uh, Dallas Airport, and uh, I was driving through D.C. to go to Maryland, and I remember watching all the, uh, or seeing all the monuments at night, and I remember seeing the reflection, and I thought to myself at 11 years old, wow, this is what I see in the movies. It's exactly uh, what, I, what I see, uh, and... Uh, we came to the U.S. Uh, we stayed with a few of our family members, but that didn't work out. Uh, so soon after, we were on our own, uh, and uh, we didn't know what to do. So my mother and I uh, rented a room. We had nothing but our suitcases and our clothes. Uh, and so we rented a room uh, in Maryland in a place called Langley Park. And uh, for many months, we didn't have a bed. So my mother was ingenious enough to create or build the bed from all the suitcases and all the clothes that we had brought. And after six months of uh, being here in the U.S., my mother was able to get a job. Uh, so with her first paycheck, my mother bought a mattress. And I remember being so grateful that day because my back had, was really tired and my back was hurting. So we had a bed and I was so grateful. Uh, soon after, uh, the room that was our home was not home anymore. So we moved and we moved and we moved. Uh, I moved from the age of 11 to six, 16 years old about nine times. And so I moved, I moved school almost every two to three months. And I remember that one time uh, I went and I met with my counselor and he said to me, well, I see that you're moving too much. What's happening? I'm surprised that you're doing well in school. And uh, I remember telling him, well, I like school. And my mother always used to tell me, you don't have to work, you, don't, you, you only have to work on school. That's your way out. And so I did what I had to do. Uh, I went to school. Um, and during that time, I was already undocumented. Uh, so uh, we were granted a tourist visa, and when we came to the U.S., they only uh, gave us a six-month uh, stay time. And so we overstayed that time, and we became undocumented after the six-month uh, of being here in the U.S. And so growing up, I knew what... I knew that I was undocumented, but I didn't know the limitations I was going to have uh, until I got to high school. Uh, I remember being in a denial mode all the time. I remember being assimilated, and I remember having my classmates uh, ask me if I was going on the field trips or if I was getting my driver's license, and I would lie to them, and I would always give them excuses um, as to why I wasn't doing the things that my classmates were doing. And so I remember my first encounter with ICE. Uh, I remember that my mother and I had gone to a McDonald's for a Sunday lunch. And I remember that we were having our breakfast, uh, you know, having conversations about how school went. And then I saw the ICE agents coming into the McDonald's. And I remember seeing them taking all the customers at that McDonald's and everyone that was outside. And I remember my mother telling me, let's just have a conversation, pretend like they're not here. Uh, they passed by our table and uh, thankfully uh, they didn't interrupt at our breakfast. Uh, but I did see how uh, they were taking uh, everyone else. So that was my first encounter with ICE at the age of 13 years old. Uh, it's always been a constant fear, right? Especially with my mother, uh, who continues to be undocumented. Uh, and so I remember being in high school, and I remember taking all the AP classes that I could possibly take. I remember um, 
uh, I remember being the editor in chief for my school newspaper, but I always knew that I had a limitation and I knew that I was undocumented. And I knew that even though I could be accepted to college, I would not be able to afford it since I was going to be charged out of state rates uh, as a result of my status. And so at that time, uh, I had two options, right? Uh, I could either, uh, you know, be okay uh, with what was happening, or I could decide to take action and to fight. And so I live in Maryland, and during that time, um, we were uh, they were fighting for the Maryland Dream Act, which essentially uh, was going to give in-state tuition to all undocumented students in the state. And so uh, I decided to take action, and I decided to fight for in-state tuition uh, and uh, education equity in my state. Uh, and thankfully, we won. And that was right before I graduated from uh, from high school. Uh, and so I went on. Uh, I continued studying. I continued doing my best. And I was accepted into multiple schools, but I, unfortunately, I couldn't go to any of them. I didn't have the means to pay for school. And all the scholarships that I was being granted required me to have a social security number. And I didn't have that at that moment. So DACA passed, Defraction for Childhood Arrivals passed. I applied. And eight months later, I was, I was granted DACA. And it was a month right before I was going to graduate from school. And by that time, I was a, a bit late to, you know, uh, get the scholarships and everything else that the schools were offering me. And so what I did... Uh, as soon as I got DACA was that I got myself on the bus, I went to the social security office and I got a social security number. Uh, with that social security number, I uh, got on the bus again and I went to my local community college to enroll in school. Um, and, and so I ended up going to Montgomery College in Maryland and then I transferred to a four year uh, university. And so during that time, uh, I have always been working and supporting my mother. And so, because of the Dream Act campaign uh, and winning in Maryland, I, I became empowered. Before, I was so ashamed of being undocumented. I, was, I, I, I resented my mother. And I remember telling her, you brought me here, and now I, I'm, I'm living. At, I'm, this is the life I have because you decided to bring me here. And because of this campaign, I became empowered. And I said to myself, well, you know, this happened for a reason. And, you know, I can either let it defeat me or I can fight and just be proud of who I am. And so I decided to be proud and, and you know, be able to say that I'm undocumented and I'm afraid. And so I, uh, because of that, I decided to uh, be a community organizer. I know that uh, there are people out there that are going through the same circumstances that I went uh, when I was in high school and, and, you know, even people in college. And I want to tell them and let them know that it's okay to be undocumented. Uh, it's okay to, you know, struggle to go to college and it's okay to work a full-time job and go to school part-time. Uh, but what matters is that you get there no matter how long it takes. So uh, I continue working with immigrant youth in the DMB. Uh, um, I mostly work with unaccompanied minors who are those that came to the U.S. Uh, in, in that um, 
wave uh, between 2012 and 2014 of uh, on a of immigrant youth that came to the U.S. by themselves. So I work with many of them, uh, I'm helping them with the assimilation process, uh, navigating the, the college application process, and uh, more importantly, letting letting them know that they're welcome and that, and that they're loved and that their struggle is not something that they have to go through by themselves, but they have a loving and supporting community of people that have already gone through that and that they're more than happy and willing to to fight and stand with them. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. So our next speaker is Alejandra Correas. Alejandra was born in El Salvador and migrated to Maryland with her mother and siblings when she was only five years old to reunite with her father in hopes that together their family could have a brighter future. She's now 22 years old and is a student at Montgomery College. She's pursuing an English degree and her dream is to work in publishing. Aside from college, she's the LGBTQ DMV organizer for United We Dream. First of all, thank you all for sharing your story and thanks for having giving us the opportunity to share our stories with you. Um, like she mentioned, I moved to the United States at the age of five. I, my earliest and fondest of memories are from Florida, which is the first state I lived in coming here. My father was uh, a ranch manager and I just remember the lush evergreen fields of Florida to me, that's where my story originates. Um, as a five-year-old, I, I don't really have any regulations of what life was like in El Salvador. I have no emotional yet or cultural ties to it. I know my parents left El Salvador uh, looking for a better future. Uh, it's very, there's a lot of gang violence down there at the moment, and it was all starting back when we were there. Growing up, Life was pretty normal for me. My parents didn't really ever talk about immigration, what my status was. So it wasn't until I was about to go to high school that I realized that I was undocumented. It wasn't until I was about to go to high school that DACA came around and I was able to get some type of legal status. Um, I remember being a very engaged student up until the time I realized what my my immigration status meant. That's the last time I would make honor roll. That's the last time I would get any type of award in school because I my mindset was completely defeated. I was like, what's the point of being a 4.0 student when I know I won't ever be able to reach those colleges of choice? In high school, I just scraped by never doing any of the work, just showing up to class, taking exams. I remember teachers asking me, why, why aren't you trying? You're such a bright student, uh, what's wrong? And me not really being able to tell them why, because I was very much ashamed of my status, who I was and where I came from. Uh, There's this one time we went to a college fair. It was our junior year of high school. I knew I shouldn't have gone because it was gonna put me in a dark place and it did. I remember coming home with all those pamphlets of all these schools that I wanted to go to, sitting there and just crying, knowing that that was way out of reach for me. I enrolled in Montgomery College, um, and for a long time I still was very ashamed of who I was. I would never share my status with anybody. And it wasn't until the 2016 election where 
I noticed that all these values that I thought this country had were slowly being dismantled, that I decided to get involved. Um, I was invited to a whole bunch of actions. I remember going down to Texas to protest Senate Bill 4, which would allow people to racially profile these immigrants, the so-called show me your papers law. That's the first time I felt empowered in a community. That's the first time I felt like I was truly accepted. And that was actually the first time I like spoke in front of a crowd and accepted the fact that I was documented and that there was no shame behind that. Uh, now I'm an activist, an organizer, and I also help Claudia a lot with the students. It's funny how the things I was once so ashamed of have become the things I'm most passionate about today. I love working with the youth. I see myself in them, knowing that just having one person there help you through the process makes an, a complete difference in everything, yet alone an entire community. Uh, it's been very rewarding to say the least. And I am no longer ashamed of where I came from, who I am. I am quite the opposite. I am so proud of my roots. I am so proud of my community. And it's just, I have a new energy where I just want to do this community proud and show them that, you know, we can do this. Like, we will get this change done. At this point in the event, we transitioned into an audience Q&A session. All four speakers were joined by Alfredo Torres, who's a lawyer who specializes in immigration law. The first audience question was a little tough to hear on the recording, so I'll repeat it back to you now. Can you tell us a little bit about the right to seek asylum and how it's supposed to work versus what's happening now and how people's rights are being violated? Alfredo was first to respond, followed by Yasmin and Nawaf. First of all, thank you for having me here. Um, it's great to be in Arlington back. I live in Alexandria. Um, going back to your question, asylum law. First, you need to have, uh, it depends your way of entry. If you enter through the border without inspection, you have to have a credible fear interview where an asylum officer or a customs officer has to determine whether you have the requisite credible fear to enter into the country and seek asylum. If you can pass this, this test at the border, then they'll transfer you to a detention center and afterwards you can come into uh, where you, your, your destination. Um, if you do not pass the credible fear interview, if it's, if it's found negative, you can request an immigration judge to give you a review of that decision. And then if you can convince the immigration judge uh, that it's credible, you can proceed with your application for asylum. If you come in with a visa, then you have to file your asylum, applica uh, asylum application. You don't need a credible fear interview, but you do need to file it with uh, citizenship, citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, there are other ways you can do it without a credible fear interview, uh, but for the most part, that's the general rule. However, uh, it's very important to note that everyone who seeks asylum, whether you come in with a visa or whether you come in without inspection, has to file it within one year. If you fail to do that, uh, you can, it can become another type of application, which is called withholding of removal, uh, which has a higher burden to prove. So it's very important that uh, people who do seek asylum have to, have to do it within one year. So I, I just wanted to, this is really great, I just wanted to quickly add to that. Um, so, but, so the thing that has changed in this administration, however, is, um, uh, so uh, 
so Sessions ruled in this case called Matter of AB, and uh, USCIS actually put out a guidance on that uh, just, I think it was a week or two ago at this point. So, so what's being changed right now in terms of asylum law is that the administration, one, is saying that anyone who comes to our border, at the southern border, um, if they come without authorization, and that means if, you know, if they're crossing illegally, even if they are asylum seekers, uh, this guidance that this administration has provided to the agents at the border, they're telling them that anybody who came without authorization is, is essentially barred from applying for asylum. So that's one thing that they're doing, this administration is doing in terms of kind of dismantling the asylum system. And then the other thing um, is, well, yes, traditionally, right, anybody who comes to our border who's filing or seeking asylum, um, they tell the agent at, at the border, at the port of entry, and then, yes, they'll get an opportunity, they'll, they'll be sent to a detention center to make their case before a judge. But again, this, this guidance that this, the administration has recently put out in the matter of AB, not only have they said that victims of domestic violence and gang violence are now precluded um, from applying for asylum, um, but they also have basically made it in incredibly difficult for others who um, are still qualify um, in, in trying to seek asylum. They're, they're basically saying that anybody who comes to our border who has a credible fear claim would have to make their entire case with the agent um, at the border. Is that, that's correct, right? That's the matter AB. So, I mean, the reason why that's incredibly troubling is simply because this administration is literally dismantling the, the entire asylum system. Not only are they making it incredibly difficult for anybody to, to file for and get asylum status, but the fact that now they're saying two incredibly large groups of you know, victims of domestic violence and gang violence, which are the majority of the folks that are coming to the southern border, are now precluded from even applying for asylum is, is really outrageous. Um, and then for, you know, for folks that, again, work on asylum issues, and as someone who came to the country without authorization, um, if, if my family were to come in today, um, so we would essentially be barred from applying for asylum um, because that's essentially what this administration is is, is doing. So, so I, I I mentioned two programs when I was talking uh, SIV and IOM what they call it P two. So SIV Special Immigrant Visa that was a program you know put into action after advocating you know after some veterans advocate from who were in Afghanistan and Iraq, they came back, they left their interpreters behind, many of them got killed, so they said, okay, why don't we do something, bring these guys here? So they, you know, they were like thousands of them, they got here, but as I said, then the, the other, the P2 program, which is like they come through IOM, it's like for the extend family. So for, through SIV, I could only bring Layla, my wife, I would have kids, I would, but my parents and my brothers and they wouldn't be able so the p2 program i would be able to bring them uh and, and then in that case but it, it was like at least two years of vetting you would go through two years of vetting you know you had to apply there and then this is a program where 
if you are authorized to come here, you are authorized from Iraq. It's not like you come to the border and then you seek asylum. No, you seek asylum in your country. But this program, I mean, this is like people who worked with military. I, I personally, with my two, three of my, two of my other brothers, we like worked harm. I got shot one time. It's like same danger we had. But now those programs have stopped too. So that's also like to I, I everywhere like now I'm I'm one of the big advocates you know of like trying to do something and we were pushing we are, we're still pushing for it. I mean we don't stop but it's been uh, like for example my one of my cousin was killed working with the special forces during an operation and when he was killed his son was 21 day old now his son is 10 year old and he hasn't got the you know his family hasn't got the you know the the permission to get here. Thank you. The second audience question was first answered by Claudia, followed by Nawaf. My name is Pablo. Um, actually, my mom is from Uruguay. Um, my entire family on my mother's side immigrated here. Um, and they were very, very lucky to have had the opportunity to uh, immigrate here legally. Um, that was luck in my head. So I'm really glad that they were able to and that they didn't have to go through, I would what I would measure as hardship in the immigration process. So notwithstanding their experience in Uruguay. Um, my question is for the immigrants. Um, what moment, if, you, if you're comfortable sharing, what moment do you feel in your life of all of your experiences was a defining moment where you felt the most persecuted for either um, your origin or your... Um, immigrant status, and if there isn't one that stands out, which one are you comfortable sharing with us today? So I grew up in Maryland, and uh, you know I have always felt welcome in Maryland uh, and very loved and supported by my community. Uh, but something that that you just mentioned, uh, it happened on Monday last week. Uh, so uh, right now. Uh, the group of uh, young people that I'm working with and I are pushing uh, in one of the localities for Freedom City Resolution, or better said, ordinance, uh, which essentially says that uh, everyone in the community will be welcome, loved, and supported, regardless of their immigration status, uh, background, uh, beliefs. And so we were going to go testify to City Hall and uh, we were waiting for the rest of the group to come uh, to join us and go to the hearing. And so we were waiting at a park uh, right across from City Hall and someone approached us. Uh, we, were, we were wearing our Here to Stay shirts, which is uh, something that we use at United We Dream. And somebody came and said, uh, here to stay. And everyone was so happy to reply and they said yes. And he said, here to stay. Oh, you know who else is here to stay? MS-13, right? Uh, so, you know, uh, we felt really bad uh, and the first thing that came to my mind was the comment that was made by the president a few weeks ago that called uh, all immigrants animals, right? So uh, this is the first time in over 10 years that I have called Maryland my home that I have felt unwelcome and that I have seen, uh, you know, bigotry and hate and racism happening in my community. Pablo then had a follow-up question where he asked the following, can you clarify? First of all, was this statewide or citywide? And was this man alone slash what was the context? He was actually a city employee. Uh, he, he was a janitor that was uh, cleaning the park where we were 
uh, waiting for uh, the other members to come, right? And so he simply approached us when he saw that we had signs that said undocumented, unafraid, uh, here to stay, Freedom City now. Uh, we did not do anything to provoke him. Uh, and, you know, I, I can really say that it's, uh, it's statewide, right? Uh, because I have never felt this before and I have never experienced this type of, uh, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment before. Uh, so I think it's mostly uh, those people that were afraid to, sh to share their beliefs in the past are coming forward and they're uh, being more vocal about hate and uh, everything that, that, that's out there to demonize immigrants. Yeah, I, I came from Iraq from a minority and in Iraq, there's, I mean, our situation as minority is terrible. We've been persecuted since forever. I mean, like Yazidi has been through 70 something genocides, 74 genocides during, you know, their experience. I, in DC, everybody, I, I, I felt very welcome so far. I, I have only one incident when I was, I was working with the Starbucks on a part-time job and we were four people there and the manager was downstairs. So I was from Iraq. The You know, there were three baristas and one supervisor. The supervisors were originally from Korea. Uh, two of my other friends, one was from, you know, Ethiopia, and the other one is from Philippines. And uh, our manager is from Russia. <laughs> Entire immigrants. And this guy came and looked at us. I said, okay. You guys better make a you know a background check a, a background double check up because we don't trust you guys you're serving us and we were just looking at each other and then the manager came and she I mean she apologized said I, I'm sorry because he put in I I write poetry so I can't, he went back home and I wrote a poem that's my reaction <laughs> the next audience question was first answered by Alejandra and then by Claudia. Um, I want to know if uh, Claudia and Alejandra have experienced when you come forward to help with legislation or tell your story, does that put you or your family at risk? And how do you come to that decision when you're undocumented? Uh, well, for me, coming to terms with the decision, it was just like, you know, this is bigger than just me. This is an issue that does not only affect me, it affects about 800,000 more. Um, and I realized that I didn't, being so close to DC, I didn't have the privilege of keeping my story silent. I didn't have that privilege of pretending that I was like everybody else anymore. That's what helped me come to terms and deciding to come out with my story. Um, as far as putting us in risk, uh, any public figure when it comes to things like this is at risk. Uh, but you do have an entire community backing you behind. So in a sense, it empowers you and makes you stronger. And it like overshadows all those small fears and all those threats that you might think are coming. Um, I do have to agree with what um, Alejandra said. Uh, you know, uh, when you share your story for the first time, uh, it's something so liberating. You know, you feel that a weight has been lifted off your, off your shoulders and you feel that you can ultimately be freed and you can be okay with whom you are and you come to terms and accept who you are as, as being undocumented and every other identity that comes with it, right? Uh, so I've been vocal about being undocumented, uh, I want to say since 2011 
And, uh, you know, everything was fine, you know. And right before uh, Trump was elected into office, uh, my dad sends me an article from Bolivia. And he tells me, oh, you're on a hate list. And so I'm part of a hate list that someone wrote. And it's it's posted online that targets all the public um, undocumented immigrant figures and and it basically says where where they live and you know which articles they mentioned their their status and so that happened almost two years ago and I'm still here I haven't I haven't been you know detained or anything and it's because uh, you know the movement is greater than me and there are other people out there that I know that if something were to happen to me they're going to have my back and they're going to do everything that is you know everything possible for me to stay and they're going to fight for me and and that's something that we do at united we dream we uh advocate and uh we do a lot of uh deportation defense work uh that if there are any um families that are being separated we work for the uh, we work with them to make sure that uh parents that children are are released and that they can continue living and thriving here in the u.s the next audience question was for all five speakers. Alejandro was first to respond, followed by Claudia, Nawaf, Yasmin, and Alfredo. Your stories are all breathtaking, and, and um, taking it in is, is a lot. Um, so I guess my question for you all, each of you individually, is how, what kind of ripple effect would you like to see from your giving your story tonight? Like, what can we do? You know, what can we do to either legally, socially, Progressively, however, what would you like to see the result of, of you sharing these very painful and personal stories? So today, actually, we had like a training on the importance of storytelling. Um, so one of the most effective things I find is actually uplifting the stories of these people, letting them share it and actually getting out, getting it out there because we're still looked as numbers and statistics. But once we have a face to the story, it's just like, we're much more humanized and it's a lot harder for anybody to oppress you once they view you as human. So that's one of the most important things. It's just uplifting the stories of all these people and their experiences. Here in Virginia, there are not as many uh, immigrant friendly laws and you have a very big opportunity to go to Richmond and lobby for them uh, uh, for the upcoming uh, state legislature. Uh, so for the past few years, uh, I believe four or five years, every year they have been introducing two legislations. The Virginia Dream Act, uh, so that undocumented students can go to school here in Virginia. Right now, only DACA recipients can have in-state tuition. And uh, if you're undocumented, uh, you're probably going to have to pay out-of-state tuition. And Virginia driver's licenses for uh, undocumented immigrants here in the state. Uh, so... Uh, you know, January, February, March, please uh, take some time to go to Richmond uh, to advocate for, for immigrants here in the state that continue to be afraid. And like Alejandra said, to uplift their voices. For me, I know some of you or maybe many of you come from families where at least one of the you know, relatives or one of the members in the family is in the military. I mean, for me, the big thing I do right now, I really advocate for bringing all these people who are left behind, who worked with the army and are left behind. I mean, I would, I, I, I work with, you know, I, I, 
I meet with, with with senates from different you know states on the capital hill. I tell them you made a mess. There's people hurt because of what you made. You you should try. You have to help them. That's I, I mean, face to face. I tell them, and then they kind of say, oh yeah yeah yeah. I mean, but so that's one thing I would like you to pass. I mean, there are thousands of people who are families of interpreters who were with the army and they have you know in the line and they've been. They haven't been, den- some of them been denied, but there is no process. So I would, if you have any connection to your military people or your, you know, representative at this, you know, the Capitol Hill, please pass that to them, that message. So I would have to wholeheartedly agree with Alejandro that um, uplifting these stories is probably the best thing that we could do. Um, I mean, in addition to obviously the advocacy that I think all of you are already doing and contacting your, you know, you know, thankfully our senators are great on this issue and they're going to be supporting um, all the family reunification bills um, being put forth. There's been a number introduced in the House and Senate. We don't know if we'll get a vote on any of them, to be honest. Um, but, you know, continuing to advocate for for. Uh, for family reunification bills is obviously helpful. Um, I would say that in terms of why it's it's so incredibly important to uplift these stories. So, so as I mentioned, so during so during the height of the family separation crisis, um, I can't. There is, you know, a colleague of mine that actually recommended that I write about my story in in a kind of in an op-ed form. Um, and I've actually had never done that. The only the only time I've ever actually publicly spoken about my story um, was uh, at a at a town hall at a Virginia Dem event. But so so after I wrote that op-ed, um, my uh, my website uh, was attacked and, and crashed. Um, the op-ed itself, uh, someone hacked into it and chopped off like various paragraphs like the kind of the most compelling parts um so so i mentioned this because it's it's it it so the forces that are basically not on our side they they know what works right and they know that the best way for them to uh continue to attack us would be to suppress our voices specifically activists but specifically those that are personally connected to these issues um because they don't want us to talk about the fact that we also came to the u.s the same way right and we are contributing to our communities. We are living and working here. I mean, I'm an attorney. My, my sister's a doctor. My other brother is working on the opioid crisis, right? So we we were given a chance and we came here as, as undocumented immigrants, but we weren't turned away. Um, you know, we were given the opportunity to go to school. We eventually became naturalized and we were able to get scholarships to in-state universities, right? Things that we're not doing today. Um, and these are stories that this administration doesn't want the American people to hear, that immigrants are successful and they're, they're contributing to our community. So as much as we can in terms of uplifting these stories, I think it's, it's the most helpful. We have to continue getting involved in the political system, electing more progressive candidates locally, state, nationally. Um, after Trump got elected, uh, we had a meeting at my office and we learned that ICE and CBP, they became emboldened after that election. 
a lot of the things that they would they would never do, they're doing now. So some of it, the the with the children separation, random uh, ice pickups, it's increasing more and more. I always get calls from clients saying, "Oh, they're at my door. What do I do?" Um, unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the privilege to have an attorney, and they don't know what what to do. There's language barriers. So I think we all need to do our continue working to uh, electing people who are going to share our values, protect our communities, and uh, really uplift us uh, because Americans, we make America great. We really do. Thank you. The next question was answered by Alejandra and then by Claudia. I think everybody is always looking for, like, what's my sphere of influence? And I think there are things and that you've talked about that we can do. And I guess I'm kind of, I want to bring it to like a more personal, like what can I do? Um, and I guess my only thing I can think of immediately is I work for the Fairfax County um, school system in central office. And what is something that the schools did or didn't do that either helped you to feel welcome or that made you feel unwelcome? And what, like, what message can I take back to the people I work with in my office? Um, what, what's the most impactful thing? It could be positive or negative that you'd like for the teachers and um, people that, you're, that the children are working with day to day. I keep thinking of when, the, when Trump was first elected and when we, all, all this stuff happened that te- my teacher friends would say, the children are crying in the schools, like all the kids in the hallways in schools that had high immigrant population. They're crying, saying that their parents are going to be sent back. Um, they're terrified. And I had people who didn't really understand that saying, well, then they shouldn't come here to begin with. Why? You wouldn't be upset if you hadn't come here. You're not supposed to be here. So what can teachers and schools do that would help the kids? So I graduated high school about four years ago, so relatively recent. Um, there's absolutely no talk about anything regarding immigration in our school systems. We have counselors that do not know how to like help these children. Um, I guess part of it was lack of resources when I was graduating, but now like in just four years, there's so many things that are available as far as scholarships, um, ways to take CLEP exams and get reduced stuff for these children. and. A lot of them still don't know how to like navigate these children through the process. They don't understand what it's like for them. They don't understand what they're going through and how to help them. Um, something that I probably would have found helpful during the time was having speakers go and actually speak in these classes, like the ESL classes, because a lot of them are undocumented. In those classes is having people go there and talk. People going through the similar experiences. People that actually know how to like help them navigate the system would be more than helpful. When I first came to the US, uh, I was placed in ESL classes. And many times uh, I was made feel that I wasn't as intelligent as other on-level classes. And so I remember that uh, even though I was taking calculus back home in fifth grade, um, when I came here, I was placed in basic math. And so I, I, I remember also being in science classes and just, you know, uh, feeling that I was being placed in lower classes. And, uh, you know, I had to prove myself and I had to work really hard in order to, you know, make it to honor roll or like make it to honors classes and AP classes. And 
And I know that this is something that continues to happen with other students, that they come and, you know, they're, they're, they, they make them feel that they're not as intelligent. And many times, you know, they believe it. And so they, they choose to, to stay in those classes and, you know, because that's what they're telling them, right? So definitely uh, investing more in, in ESL students, right? Um, ultimately, you know, you want them to succeed rather than them, you know, withdrawing from school and dropping off dropping off so or dropping out dropping out uh so you definitely you know i think investing and in, in placing more resources into those classes uh will definitely make a difference for those that uh are new arrivals alfredo and yasmin both answered the next audience question this is most likely for alfredo maybe yasmin as well um with the children that have been separated from their families is there so you said there's, probably, there's around 3,000 of them. Is there any realistic chance that they would all be reunited with their families? Or do you guys know what could potentially happen to these kids? Well, I mean, we don't have the numbers right now exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but we've asked our uh, congressmen and other liaisons to... Okay, sure, sure, sure. We've asked our Congress and our liaisons to really, uh, especially in Texas, New Mexico, where this is happening, to really uh, look for them and try to reunite them. Realis realistically speaking, I'm not sure if they're all going to be able to be put back together. What's happening now is a lot of the children are appearing in court uh, by themselves because their parents have already been sent back home or vice versa. And uh, a lot of times what they're doing is they're just sending them what's called voluntary departure, sending them back home. So they are being reunited, but a lot of times back in Mexico or in the Central American countries where they came from. Uh, she, a lot of them have not been given the chance to have that credible fear interview or they haven't been able to let back into the country and reunite like it was previously with the Obama administration. Um, so we're not sure exactly when or how they're going to be reunited. The ones that we've heard have been reunited, but back back home, not, unfortunately not here. Another audience member had a follow-up question for Alfredo. She asked, I'm assuming that officials go with the children? Yes, they will. Yes, they are. But it's not, uh, it's not, it's, it's very fast paced. It's not like, I wouldn't even call it due process many times. It's very just sign here, say this, and then you're back home. So it's not really a fair and just system as we would see it. So most of you probably also know there's um, there's been a, a ton of kind of litigation around this to important cases that the ACLU filed and has, um, you know, was ruled in their favor. So one was addressing the zero tolerance policy, the family separation. So uh, federal court did mandate that the administration would have to reunite children um, you know, with their parents, uh, gave, a, gave a time frame. It was two weeks for children under five, and it was a month for those over five. So the two-week period deadline has already passed. Um, that deadline, the administration, I think, reported in terms of saying that they were able to match up or reunite about, I think it was 80, is that right, about 80 children. Um, this is out of, again, thousands um, that have been separated, um, and as has already been mentioned, one 
I mean, the troubling part about all of this is um, we know that the administration does, does not even likely have the records, right, for all of these families. Um, a lot of the parents have already been deported. Um, so, you know, while it's it's great that we have these, um, you know, court cases and they're, they're, they're you know, being ruled in, in our favor, it's just... It's, it's, it's an incredibly frustrating and difficult process when the administration it does not meet the deadlines because they say that they are not able to reunite these families um, since they most likely don't have the information to do so. Claudia responded to the next question from Pablo. For any of the activists up here or anyone who's involved at all, um, there's uh, I know there's a lot of folks from here from AYD, from Arlington Democrats and from outside. A lot, of, uh, a lot of people here are activists for policies. I mean, this is what we push for. So are you guys a part of any specific groups that actually go and lobby at legislatures during legislative sessions? Can we join? Can we do any partnerships? Like, what, what, what can we do to bring people together? Because if we show up in numbers at the Virginia legislative session um, next year in February, then it's really hard for them to ignore us. So, you know, how can we connect? Uh, so, uh, United We Dream, uh, we do a lot of national work, and we did a lot of work uh, when it came to DAPA, the DREAM Act, uh, but we understand that at the moment, it is really hard to pass any type of legislation at the national level, and therefore, we believe that going into our localities and fighting for local legislation in our localities is what we can do now, right? So we currently have, uh, we are building a grassroots base in DC, Maryland, and Virginia to fight for those, um, uh, to fight for those legislations, right? Uh, So we will be working uh, here in the Virginia State Legislature when the time comes. Uh, So feel free to outreach to Alejandra or or I. Uh, And also something that, you know, we, we have a privilege of living so close to to Capitol Hill and to Congress. So uh, something that I, I remember when uh, we were talking about the family separation is that during uh, the height of that crisis, Congress passed an appropriations bill, uh, which means that they're looking to fund the wall uh, to bring more money to detention centers and to ultimately bring more reinforcement to the border, right? So they're having a boat next week. Uh, if I believe the boat will happen on Thursday. Uh, and so we're going to be taking action at the national level too. Uh, so we're gonna do some office visits uh, on Wednesday that you're more than welcome to come. And uh, like I said, uh, we're doing, a, uh, Alejandra and I do a lot of work at the national and local level. Uh, and you know, you're more than welcome to reach out to one of us and we can coordinate when we uh, are taking action at the, uh, here in the state legislature. Another audience member had the following question. My mother immigrated to the U.S. 51 years ago from Costa Rica with her family when she was just a few years younger than Claudia and Alejandra. When I hear your stories, I hear echoes of hers, but also a few differences. So what has changed since then? Claudia and Alfredo responded. Uh, so we definitely have a broken immigration system. Uh, ultimately, there is no way for me uh, to apply for uh, for a pathway for citizenship, even if I wanted to. Uh, so the only remedy for me to 
you know, become a naturalized citizen is to uh, pass immigration reform. Uh, the last one that we had, I believe, was over 30 years ago. So uh, I wasn't even born back then. Uh, so I think it's, it's definitely time to, to um, update those immigration laws that we currently have in place. There's one recent case is from a legal perspective, a uh, matter of Castro Tome. We have uh, attorney, our beloved attorney general decided to take a case upon himself for review. And basically, if someone was married to an American citizen but had come in through the border, they needed to obtain a waiver. And most courts, immigration courts, would let that person uh, have a certain amount of time to leave the country and come back and, and process their uh, paperwork. Now, um, with this new uh, law, that well, this new case that he took it upon himself to review and decide, uh, he's basically forcing people to uh, obtain a order of deportation. And it's another way that he is just making things harder, even for people who have a qualifying relative, such as a US citizen spouse. Uh, this is something that, uh, again, it, it will be litigated, uh, and it, I, I'm, th I'm confident that it will be overturned up in the appellate level. The next audience question was summarized as follows. Is there a way we can synthesize or mainstream immigrant rights activist information so we know when things are happening? We need to have ways to know where we can help and show our support. Alejandra, Claudia, and Nawaf respond. So United We Dream actually has... Um an 877-877 number, which you could text, and they will text back with information of upcoming actions that we do have. They give you the time, place, and location, like a day before it happens and all that. So if anybody wants to like text that, the number is 877-877. Uh, so if you're interested, uh, we usually send information about uh, actions happening in the DMB and also at the national level. So the number to text is 877-877 with the word here to stay all together. We also have like a Facebook page and it has all the actions going on um, around the country with a whole bunch of information too. And again, also with direct contact with either one of us about things that are going on. I mean, one thing for my experience for the last two years, <laughs> It's not a lot of their experience, but what I found is that on the Capitol Hill, sometimes there are like big events going on. Uh, for example, this, not tomorrow, the day after tomorrow on Tuesday, there's like, they call it the Ministerial Conference for Religious Freedom, which is a big thing now. We need, yeah, it's called, it's a ministerial event. It's called, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, for religious freedom over the world. So, and there will be, I think the, you know, the, uh, what they call it, the foreign ministers of like 80 countries will be gathering and, you know, the vice president will be there. So one of the things I think is very powerful during these big events, if you are an advocacy group or if you're an activist, try to be a part of that. I mean, on direct question to the people who are like a part of a decision or you want to do some kind of, you know, event around that there there is a big thing so that's what i found that's very working so that's also the you know the kind of venues where you meet the people you wouldn't either meet otherwise meet them anywhere else the final question of the night was answered by all five speakers this is um, an assignment that we often give to students um, i work for the advanced academics office and one of the things we try to teach children to do is be critical and creative thinkers and so one thing we often ask kids to do which I'm going to ask you to do if you wouldn't mind um, 
a message. It's called encapsulation. So, you know, a word or a phrase. Um, I would like you to um, send a message to um, our 45th president. Um, uh, what, what's your message that you would like him to, to hear about this? It can be one word or a phrase that you get to speak directly to him. I think I said it earlier, immigrants make America great. I think I'll, I'll, I'll steal uh, United We Dream's uh, slogan, here to stay. When I, I mean, we, when we came here, for example, I would say, I give myself as an example, I'm not here to steal anybody's dream. You know, that's, that will be my song. So I, I'm, I'm here to achieve my own dream with the others. I am not here to steal anybody's dream. Mine is kind of oxymoronic because he's actually the reason why I'm empowered and I decided to do something. Um, he's the reason I decided to fight back. A lot of the times as humans, we need to get shocked into action and he was exactly that. You brought us together. <laughs> this was a really great event. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thank you guys for being here. It really means a lot to me, a lot to Arlington Young Dems, and a lot to the people that took the time to put the event together today. So thank you guys so much. Another quick reminder is that the, the audio from this event will be on the Community Voices We're Listening podcast. Tell your friends about it. Let them go on iTunes, download the audio from the event, because I think that the stuff that we heard tonight, I think everybody should hear. So thank you guys so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Community Voices We're Listening. Please click that subscribe button if you want to hear more from us and leave us a review. You can find us at our website, communityvoicespod.com. You can email us at communityvoicespod at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at communityvoicespod. Thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you soon.